Ladies and gentlemen, Alien Zoo is now open. to Alien Zoo. Thank you so much for listening. Now, this week's episode is a special one. It's our second interview of this show, our first being uh, Cliff Brackman, which was a fascinating look into the world of cryptozoology. And you know, this episode isn't anything less. I had the pleasure of chatting with cryptozoologist and author Ken Gerhard. We had, a, we had a nice talk, and it's just really cool to have a conversation with someone who has found their passion and is more than willing to share their knowledge and experiences. So, I hope you enjoy the... Oh, wait, I, I do have to say, I needed to edit the conversation a bit, uh, because as I was talking with Mr. Gerhard, another family was trying to s- talk with me through Skype, a family I didn't even know. I'm actually not even positive they were speaking in English, but as a polite podcast host, I ignored them the best as I could. Uh, so I hope the edits aren't too annoying. A few times the call did cut out, so again, I did my best to puzzle together this wonderful interview. Um, and without any more stalling, I hope you enjoy uh, Alien Zoo's chat with Mr. Ken Gerhard. All right, so let's start out from the beginning. Uh, how did you get into the field of cryptozoology? Um, well, uh, it's been a lifelong kind of evolved into a passion over time. I first, uh, you know, I often tell people that when I was very young, uh, about eight years old, like many boys, I was fascinated by monsters. Oh, yes. And uh, monster movies, but I also loved the outdoors and animals. And, um, you know, my dad was a uh, forestry professor, so we spent a lot of time in the outdoors camping and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I uh, had some exotic pets as a kid, uh, caiman alligators and snakes. And, mm-hmm. and I guess the first cryptid I ever heard about was probably Bigfoot uh, when I was about eight or nine years old. And it just it was just like a, a flip switched. Oh, uh, sure. Uh, switch flip. <laughs> <laughs> I flipped my, my phrase. Um <laughs> Yeah, it was like something clicked, and uh, I just thought it was amazing, the possibility that something like Bigfoot might actually exist. And um, so then growing up, I was, uh, you know, of course, spending a lot of time reading and uh, exploring the library and trying to find books on the subject. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother would tell me stories. My mother was a huge influence. She would tell me stories about the Yeti and the Mothman and all these fabulous creatures. Oh, yes. uh, We traveled quite a bit when I was young all over the world. When I was 15 years old, my family visited Loch Ness in Scotland, and so, you know, I attempted uh, to do field research there at a young age. With a, I had an 8-millimeter movie camera, and I would interview people. And mm-hmm. So this has been something I've been interested in my whole life, really, and um, per se, but uh, I've just been very, very blessed and had some amazing opportunities, and yeah. uh, I love what I do. That's fantastic. Um, so you mentioned, you know, traveling all over the place and, you know, doing a bunch of different investigations throughout the world. Um, have you had any uh, cryptid encounters personally? I've never seen a cryptid with my own eyes that I can definitively say that was what I saw. But right. um, I 
vocalize on a few occasions. Uh, one time in particular, I was this was back in uh, August of 2003. I was on an expedition with some other researchers in an area where where there had been a lot of reports mm -hmm. in North Texas. And uh, one night uh, in this remote area by this lake, we heard these grunting noises, and I recorded them, and it was coming out of the, the thick brush. We couldn't see what was making them, but uh, it sounded like a huge ape, and it was kind of grunting at us. It kind of sounded like a mixture of a grunt and kind of heavy breathing or panting and maybe just a little hint of a diabolical laughter, too. Wow. Probably, that's probably psychological on my point, but that's kind of <laughs> what it sounded like. But it was very aggressive and loud, and uh, we didn't see it. We did uh, try to flush it out unsuccessfully. We did go to a higher vantage point, and we saw some eye shine. And then ultimately, the, the, when daylight broke, we made our way into the, the patch where we'd heard this thing, and it, uh, we found footprints and um, some mutilated uh, animal carcasses, turtle shells. Oh, no kidding. Uh, they have been ri ripped in half. And, um, yeah, so all of that was the most convincing thing that I've personally experienced where I thought, wow, this, this is crazy. This must have been Bigfoot. There's, there's no other explanation for you know, all of this is happening. Right. Now, did, have, you, have you heard that same sound since, or did you hear it again during that time you were investigating, or was, that, was it just like a one-time one yeah, occurrence? We didn't, it, we, didn't, we didn't hear it again that night, but we did hear other sounds, kind of like a moaning, more distant, so as if the thing had moved off almost, and it was kind of echoing us. So, like, we would do calls, and... Um, and it would answer back, and it sounded kind of like a, a sorrowful kind of moaning, wailing kind of sound. Okay. Grunt. But I've never heard any anything quite like the grunt. Um, I could say, and this is highly subjective, but mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the, the quote-unquote Sierra sounds, oh, yes. with vocalizations that were recorded in uh, California in 72, it sounded kind of like some of those as far as just like the, the deep frequency and the kind of... Uh, some you know when it gets into some of those grunty kind of vocalizations, it's sure. Kind of similar to that. Now, now the Sierra sounds just um, to to tell the listeners who may not be aware. Were, now, were those the sounds that were sounding almost like uh, like those old fashioned samurai talk? Fair. Almost like a what? Or like like the the uh, like samurai speak in a way in those yeah, old movies. It, it was yeah. Some people call it the samurai chatter. That's kind oh. of a nickname for it. Okay. Uh, but they were they were tape recorded in the remote mountains of of the Sierra Mountains mm -hmm. of uh, California by a couple of investigators named Al Berry and Ron Moorhead, starting in October of 1972. Mm -hmm. And uh, they uh, they had been alerted to this camp, this isolated hunting camp by these other hunters that had been staying there and hearing these noises and experiencing things. So they went up there to check it out, and they had a tape recorder, and. Uh, they call it the samurai chatter because it sounds like a deep, kind of deep-voiced Japanese man right. speaking very rapidly, but there's also like whistles, grunts, snorts, and it's really freaky if you ever listen to it. Now, those sounds were studied, analyzed by Dr. R. Lynn Curlin, who's a professor in the 70s, and he concluded that they had not been artificially produced or manipulated. So okay, they were Interesting. And uh, this is uh, another more recent development is there, there's an ex-Navy uh, cryptologic linguist. That's a fancy name for a guy in the Navy that translates different languages. Okay. And uh, his name is R. Scott Nelson, and he has studied the Sierra sounds at length. 
and he claims that he can even decipher a kind of a primitive language in there. No so kidding. That's, that's, that's all his research, but that's kind of interesting if that's the case. I mean, for, for people like you and me, like that just gives me goosebumps, you know, just like the possibility, the possibilities of that, you know, it's, it's really, really cool. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I've heard some, some decent Bigfoot vocalization recordings, but the, I think the Sierra sounds are still, you know, now that said, Chris, everything, as you know, in the, in the cryptozoology is controversial. So oh, sure. Some people that claim it's an, it's an out-and-out hoax, you know, and there's okay. always going to be those skeptics that say that this is a hoax, that's a hoax, but uh, to me, they're pretty convincing. I, think they, I don't think a human could replicate those. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, so uh, on the subject of, uh, of Bigfoot, um, just out of curiosity, how do you see this legendary cryptid finally making its official appearance into the scientific world? Um, like, how, how do you, what's your opinion on how it will finally be discovered? Or do you think it'll ever be discovered? I think it will eventually, yeah. because uh, I'm, I'm 90% convinced they exist based on my own experience and other evidence. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously there's a, a lot of vanishing habitat, which is very sad, but it's true. There, there's a lot of deforestation and stuff. Is Habitat is dwindling where these things live. Now, um, hopefully this doesn't sound too grisly, but I, I think the most logical reasons that we would finally find that that they exist would be a one hit by a car or right. a truck and is killed and because uh, that happens to animals all the time sadly and um, that would be one way and the another way I think would be you know maybe somebody just comes across the remains of one that had, that's died of natural causes somewhere and it doesn't have to be a whole carcass it could just be a skull or a bone a femur yeah Something like that would be, you know, conclusive evidence, and I don't think a scientist could refute it if they could tell that it wasn't a, you know, even if it was a fossil, it would be amazing because there have been no fossil hominids. Right, right. But an unfossilized hominid bone, I mean, that's that's a slam dunk. Bigfoot exists. Absolutely. Hopefully that's the way it happens. Uh, Yes. One that's died of natural causes of old age and someone just stumbles on the body somewhere. I, w- I was kind of hoping one would emerge in, you know, in 2019 when there was all these, uh, the West Coast forest fires. I uh, thought, I thought there was potential for, you know, a, a Sasquatch to, you know, maybe make his appearance then. No, that's a great point. Uh, a lot that happens for a lot of animal displacement when you have fires and natural disasters, hurricanes and things like that. It does cause animals to move into areas where they don't typically. From your that, that maybe that's how it'll happen. You may have, um, you may be onto something there. Right, right, and and, and even with the uh, you know the current situation, you know the world is going through right now with the with the quarantines, and you know I've I've seen a lot of these videos and pictures of these animals wandering the streets of these you know some semi-deserted yep. towns and cities. I was kind of hoping maybe you know a cryptid would would pop its head up uh, here and there, but haven't heard anything of that yet. No, I haven't gotten any reports either. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, all right, let's see. So so you, you've traveled all around the world in search of cryptids. Um, is there a place that you haven't got a chance to explore yet that, that is on the top of your list? I'm sorry, you dropped it a little bit. Is there a place like on my bucket list that I haven't been yet? Yes, yes. Um... Yeah, um, you know, I've always been wanting to make it down to Tasmania and, uh, and uh. join in some of the investigations for the thylacine, uh, Tasmanian tiger down there. I think that's a very promising cryptid, and it seems like there's a lot of exciting evidence coming out of there in terms of tracks and droppings. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. Okay. So, and, um, yeah. and also, you know, obviously it's an iconic thing, but, uh, you know, to get anywhere into, if not the Himalaya, where the Yeti lives, supposedly, but, you know, some of those surrounding mountain ranges, ranges of Central Asia, the uh, the Tian Shen Mountains, the Caucasus Mountains. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are sightings of things like the Yeti, and they have different names, but there are long-standing traditions of Yeti-like creatures throughout uh, Mongolia would be cool, the, the Almasti. Would be oh, kind yeah. Of like, a, like, a, like a hominin type thing. So, yeah, the, I'd say the mountains of Asia and maybe Tasmania, but there's so many places, Chris. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes. I can't tell you how many... <laughs> My bucket list must be a hundred places long. Places I haven't been yet that I want to go. You got to see them all for sure. Um, let's see. So, talking about you know different people that you've interviewed for you know possible cryptid sightings, I'm 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 sure you've had your fair share of interviews uh, where the cryptid in question turned out to be an already known animal. Um, mm-hmm. it, and now could you describe, I know you have this, this, uh, uh, composite identity. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Composite identity is a term I throw around a lot. I didn't invent that. It was actually, uh, I borrowed it from Dr. Carl Schuker, who's a very brilliant cryptozoologist in England, but, mm-hmm. uh, composite identity basically implies that, uh, I think many of our cryptids are not just one, you can't nail them down and say it's one specific species or animal. I think it's uh, a case where you have an archetype, so a general impression of, of a legendary creature that's built on different influences. And the root influence may in fact be an unknown animal. So okay. I think that is the that might be the cause. But lumped on top of that you have sightings and say like a bear is Bigfoot or you know, a wolf is a chupacabra, or right. you know, a, or you know, a big bird is a thunderbird, but maybe it's not. Things like that, and then you also, of course, have um, hoaxes. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people that just make up stories and want to get attention, or for whatever reason, um, you know. And there, there are honest mistakes. Um, you know, people see things or misinterpret things. So it's just kind of a combination. Cultural influences too. That's the other thing. And, uh, you know, that may have to do with the hoaxing and all that may influence the hoaxing and also the people that misinterpret things. But, you know, all of us are highly influenced by different uh, factors in our environment, you know. And right. A lot, one of those factors is the culture and the folklore. If we've heard stories that we live in an area where we've always heard stories about Bigfoot or, you know, whatever cryptid you want to name that, that maybe has been reported in your part of the world, <clears throat> instant at night and maybe for whatever reason your mind convinces you that maybe I did see a Bigfoot or the Jersey Devil or you know whatever it, whatever it was yeah so I think that happens a lot that you know you have to look at each sighting or account of a cryptid on an individual basis and you know take them one by one on their own merits because you I think you have a mixture of different types of experiences that are being kind of lumped together I see interesting um Let's see. So, so in the realm of cryptozoology, um, is there one cryptid, in your opinion, that is most likely to exist? Well, uh, I mentioned the thylacine a moment ago. Right. That's probably the most probable. I think they will find evidence eventually that the thylacine is still alive. Um, number two might be the orang pendek, or short man of Sumatra, which mm-hmm. is like a little. 
structure, but probably a different species. But it seems to be, I've never been there. That's probably in the bucket list too. But oh, yes. I have colleagues that have been there, like Adam Davis and, and Richard Freeman and other cryptozoologists, and they're convinced that it's basically an ape, a bipedal ape that's adapted an upright walking stance, like maybe evolved from orangutans or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there just seems to be like that part of the world has so much potential to, to hide a, an unknown animal because you're talking about one of the most biodiverse areas in the world. So common all the time, you know, it's very uninhabited, very remote. Uh, and then I think number three, I'll say, um, you know, there are a lot of lake monsters around the world that are very convincing and, and similar, but um, there's one that's reported up in Alaska, and I've been to this Lake Iliamna up in Alaska, and there's this uh, cryptid up there, the Lake Iliamna monster, and it's it's not like a Loch Ness monster or Ogopogo or Champ. It's fish. People that have seen them mostly from like aerial float planes and helicopters. Oh, in the interesting. Water. They say that they're like 20 or 30 feet long, and they're kind of a silver color with a blunt head and a, a vertical fish-like tail. So they might be either an isolated population of sturgeon, which are really uh-huh. big fish that get into lakes, or uh, they could be uh, freshwater sh- which are you know, sharks that live up in the, the cold waters. That they, they can sometimes adapt to kind of semi-freshwater environments, kind of similar to bull sharks. Oh, okay. So, um, so maybe like a, but it's basically a giant unknown fish. But it's a lake monster because it's huge. It's you know they're 20 feet long or something like that. Right. So I think those wow. are all pretty pretty probable. I'm big, you know, Bigfoot because I I think I heard it. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got Absolutely. Wow. Well. <clears throat> all right. Let's see. So, you know, it's it's yeah. Hmm? Wow. I'm 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 sorry. You cut out a little bit at the end there. Um, so you you've probably you've probably interviewed you know hundreds of possible witnesses is that probably a fair estimate yep hundreds hundreds um it, now is there an an encounter story that just sticks with you sounds like a really compelling one no i can't you know i can't really say that there's one mm-hmm. i mean there's you know there generally there are different levels of eyewitnesses and you know, many of these people I've interviewed, I think, are very credible and sincere that they've seen something remarkable. Um, but, you know, others, you know, are a little bit more dubious, and sometimes you get the feeling that they may have, you know, fooled themselves or convinced themselves that they saw something. Sure. So, um, but, you know, I'm always impressed when, <clears throat> this is a good tip for any budding investigators out there that are kind of learning the ropes, I find the most impressive accounts are the ones where people, when they when I initially interview them or they contact me, are very to direct and to the point. That is, they don't have to have a lengthy explanation. It's like, usually starts out with, you know what, I'm a truck driver, I'm a hunter, whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't, I've never, you know, I, I don't have any interest in the unexplained or UFO or ghosts or anything. Accurate description, I, or I'm familiar with this and wildlife and this is what i saw so that's very convincing the ones that aren't very convincing is when someone gets in touch with you and sometimes it's via email and it's just just long verbose story oh yes example it was a dark and windy night and i stood <laughs> it's like you know it's like they're trying to write a novel oh yes like, Look, that's not very convincing as an investigator because then it really seems like you're just trying to make up a story because you're trying to 
you know. So I don't know. Psychologically, I you know that's a red flag to me when sure. someone has too much to say about a sighting. Um, but I like it when they're kind of br- brief and succinct and to the point. And also, the most convincing eyewitness accounts are really the multiple witness accounts. Oh, right. right? Because you know, if you have one person that says they saw Bigfoot, okay, that's fascinating. But then when you have two or three. Thought he saw. I mean, that to me, from an evidential standpoint, that's very convincing because it's less like, much less likely that someone is making up a story or that they were fooled. Because you have, you know, just like if you were in a court of law, you bring in a whole bunch of witnesses one after another, and now you're building a pretty strong case. So, those are the ones that are very exciting to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Um, all right. Fantastic. Well, I, I think th- those are the list of questions that I really wanted to uh, to pick your pick your brain at. Um, is there, are there any new projects that you have going on right now that you want to plug? Um, well, I'm working on a new book, but I'm not ready to uh, reveal the subject matter just yet. Um, but I'm about a third of the way through and I'm, I'm, you know, I I feel terrible about the, the, the tragedy and my heart goes out to all of your listeners out there that are dealing with hardships and and difficulties. It's it's a tough time for everyone, but, um, you know, if, if you're a creative person and you have a, play music or, you know, paint or whatever you do, you know, I think it's a good time to, to try to f- focus on that and distract yourself from a lot of the Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. An advantage of the situation and just trying to write a book. And um, uh, on top of that, I'm, I'm, you know, promoting my other books uh, because a lot of people are looking for reading materials right now. Mm-hmm. My newest one is The Ascension. Okay, Lala. Actually, I do, you know, hopefully if things return to normal, Chris, I do have some public appearances later this year. Uh, oh, excellent. Speaking, I'll be speaking in Tennessee at the Smoky Mountain Bigfoot Conference. Oh, very cool. Uh, that's in Gat- Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and that's uh, on July 25th. And then on August 1st, I'll be at the Falk Monster Festival, Legend of Boggy Creek. In oh, South yes. Arkansas. I'll be at the Upper Peninsula Bigfoot Conference in St. Ignace, Michigan mm-hmm. in August. Hopefully, I'll be at Mothman Festival this year in Point Pleasant if it doesn't get canceled. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also the Van Meter Visitor Festival, which is in Van Meter, Iowa, which is a, a Mothman-like creature that people haven't heard of, the Van Meter Visitor, but it's a very cool cryptid, and I, have, I haven't been up there before. Oh, cool. And lastly, I'll be at the Hanobia Bigfoot Conference in Oklahoma in October and also the Texas Bigfoot Conference in October. So hopefully, if we get <laughs> return to some level of normalcy, if people are interested yeah. in Absolutely. You can attend and, and uh, come hear me speak. That sounds wonderful. I, I really hope things get back to normal soon because I this yeah. just talking with you. I want to get back. I want to get back in the forest. I want to I want to do some field research really bad. Yeah, no, you're right. I think that's. I think we're all eager to get out and do what we love to do, and I think getting out in the woods is is always a good thing. So absolutely, absolutely. Good luck to you and your research. I appreciate that. It's it's been a real pleasure picking your cryptozoological brain. And thank you very much for visiting the Alien Zoo. Really appreciate it, Ken. You got it. Everyone take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, I really hope you enjoyed my interview with cryptozoologist and author Ken Gerhard. You can find all of Ken's work 
on KenGerhard.com. That's K-E-N-G-E-R-H-A-R-D. And if you've seen a cryptid, let me know at AlienZooPodcast at gmail.com. Um, again, I'm sorry about any of the technical difficulties. I'm sure you've heard you heard that uh, throughout the interview that other family trying to get their voice heard, but nope, it's not going to happen. Not when I got Ken Gerhardt on the phone. So yeah, once again, thank you very much for listening. And until next cryptid or cryptozoologist, bye. Bye.